Hello? I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. La la. For my no, sake, please. you must stay. If you should go away, you spoil this party. Whatever Works is the 39th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 2009. Whatever Works sees Allen return to the US for the first time in many years. It was made during the writer's strike of 0708 when Allen was unable to write a new script, so he used one he had previously discarded, originally written for Zero Mostel. Larry David stars as Boris Yelnikov. He's as big a curmudgeon as you are likely to meet in cinema. But the grumpy old man has his views challenged when he meets Melody, played by Evan Rachel Wood, and forms an unlikely relationship. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week we look at 2009's Whatever Works, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it was a victim of circumstance. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back. You know, they don't know your story. Boris, tell them your story. My story is whatever works, you know, as long as, as long as you don't hurt anybody. Any way you can filch a little joy in this cruel doggy-dog, pointless black chaos. You know, just, that's my story. No, there. Tell, okay, I told that's not, tell them the story. In 2007 and leading into 2008, there was a writer's strike in Hollywood. Writers went on strike over better working conditions and demanded better deals. Technology was changing again and amongst the issues were how writers were paid for DVD residuals, the internet, and these new streaming services. The Writers Guild of America and the studios were unable to come to a deal, so the writers went on strike, which meant the work of writing had to stop, and work on most scripted shows and films had to stop. The strike caused massive disruption throughout the industry. If you look back at what happened that year in TV and film, there's peculiar stories everywhere. There was a season of Lost that was 14 episodes instead of 22. There was a James Bond film which started filming with almost no script at all. Talk shows had no monologues because they had no one to write them. There was a lot of new unscripted reality TV shows commissioned to fill the air. For Woody Allen, it threatened to derail his precious film a year schedule. Since 1982, without fail, Allen had made a film a year. More importantly, Allen liked to keep working. If he couldn't write a script, it would mean his production team had nothing to work on and the whole machine would stop, and no one knew how long the strike would last. It says a lot that Alan didn't just stop. It's the age-old argument with Alan, why doesn't he just take a year off? But instead, making a film a year was of primary importance. And so, somehow, with a writer's strike looming, Alan had to pull a script out of the bag. And in a way, that's exactly what he did. Alan is a prolific writer in general, and it seems he was especially prolific in the 70s. Over the years, he has written complete scripts that have never been made. Often, he is working on multiple scripts at the same time and decides later which one to make. So when the writer's strike happened, Alan turned to his pile of unmade scripts. The one he decided on was a script he wrote sometime in the 70s. What would become Whatever Works started as a starring vehicle for Zero Mostel. Mostel had a long career playing blustery, funny, grumpy characters in films like The Producers and Something Happened on the Way to the Forum. Alan worked with Zero Mostel in the 1976 film The Front, which starred Alan. 
I imagine Alan wrote the film before working with Mostel in 76 because around 76, Alan started to focus on directing exclusively. He had given up stand-up and a lot of the funny writings and writing for others. It's unclear if Alan thought if he would direct this script or if it would be like Played Again Sam, which was based on his work and directed by someone else. The script was originally called The Worst Man in the World and it also feels more reminiscent of his early 70s comedies rather than his late 70s sophisticated comic dramas. There doesn't seem to be any particular reason why Alan didn't pursue this one further back in the day, other than Mostel died in 1977, and likely Alan didn't see the film without him in the lead. He also had an abundance of ideas and scripts to choose from, and picking the next project from his pool has very little logic. It wasn't anything to do with the script itself. So why did Alan choose to revive this one in the noughties? I imagine there were practical reasons. It could be shot in contemporary New York. There were no special effects or trickery. There was a modest cast. And after the poetic depth of Vicky Cristina Barcelona, this was definitely a change of pace. And most importantly of all, in Larry David, he found the perfect replacement for Zero Mostel. So Alan submitted the script before the strike hit in late 2007 and got to work. It was just what it was, you know, it was just a nice moment behind the tent at the fish fry. That's the most disgusting story I ever heard. You and this adnoidal guitar player slaking your lust at some barbaric social function. We'll get to David, but let's talk about his character, Boris Yelnikov. Boris owns the picture. It is absolutely a showcase role for whoever is playing Boris. In the first half of the film, he's in almost every scene. He starts our story and he ends our story. Alan doesn't usually write showcase male leading roles, especially by the 2000s. And because this was originally written in the 70s, he still doesn't. Boris is wonderfully awful. We like him, but we mostly see life from his point of view. So he's the only one we get to relate to. He's also special, and Alan writes him to be special. He is the truth teller. He's the only one who sees the world for what it is. Alan plays this up right from the first moment, when it is revealed that Boris can see the audience. Obviously, in the world of the film, he seems delusional. He seems delusional to his mates at the coffee shop. But we know he is right, that this is a film, and that's why we immediately like him. You see something out there? Where? Yeah. What are you, an imbecile? There's an audience full of people looking at us. What are you talking about? You feel you're being watched. They paid good money for tickets, hard-earned money, so some moron in Hollywood can buy a bigger swimming pool. Okay, you're saying there are human beings out there who bought tickets to watch us. Well, mostly they're interested in me, I have to say. There's some comedy to be mined by the fourth wall breaking. There's just the awkwardness of someone talking to the audience whilst the film carries on around him. But it also gives the character of Boris someone to talk to, and he gets out a lot of information this way. It allows Boris to serve as the film's narrator later as well. Alan, of course, has broken the fourth wall before and is responsible for probably the most famous use of it in cinema in Annie Hall. Although chronologically, I reckon he wrote this before Annie Hall. At the start of the film, we get this spray from Boris where he attacks everyone directly to camera. It's not even just who he attacks, it's how he barely treats them as human. It's a long monologue and it tells us a lot about Boris and how he feels about the world. It's almost like the opening number in a musical. It sets the tone for the entire film. Let me tell you right off, okay? I'm not a likable guy. Charm has never been a priority with me. And just so you know, 
This is not the feel-good movie of the year. So if you're one of those idiots who needs to feel good, go get yourself a foot massage. Mom, that man's talking to himself. Wait, Justin. What disrupts Boris's world is Evan Rachel Wood's melody. It's interesting to wonder who Alan might have had in mind in the 70s for this role. Is it something Diane Keaton could have played? But Diane Keaton can play anything. I could see someone with the big-eyed innocence of Shelley Duvall in the role, or Marilyn Monroe or Shirley MacLaine. Alan has said he didn't really know how to write complex, multifaceted female roles until after he met Diane Keaton, and then audiences started to see it around the time of Annie Hall. This script and Melody's character feels like a throwback to before Alan wrote better female characters. Melody is, ironically, a bit of a one-note character. And let's face it, she's probably the most unconvincing street vagrant you've ever seen in cinema. Where does she get her clothes from? She just appears because the story needs her. Melody has two traits. She's not very smart, and she has a good heart. She starts as a foil for grumpy Boris. There is some comedy in their culture clash, but it's a pretty repetitive joke. Boris makes fun of her the way that Alan makes fun of the stupid gang in Small Time Crooks. But here it feels more like punching down as Melody is so sweet. However, there is one laugh out loud moment for me. There's a short nothing scene where Boris and Melody are in the park. His flippant remark about being a baseball player happened many scenes ago and there was some jokey confusion on Melody's part. Then, on this bench, she asks him about baseball again and Boris loses it in a hilarious way. There's nothing else in the scene, it's just that gag. And it's one of Alan's comic tricks to keep a joke running until it's funny again. When you see kids tossing a ball, does it ever make you miss spring training? All right. I have never played for the Yankees. Do you understand that? I have never played any sports whatsoever in my life, okay? Ever. The middle of the film, we see a switch. Boris himself mentions Pygmalion, the play that turned into My Fair Lady. It's a trope Alan has used many times, and maybe too many times. But here, he sort of turns it on its head. It seems to suggest that Boris taking a young girl under his wing is a bad idea and a dead end. The film's midpoint, and one of the best moments of the film, is when Melody returns home from a date. The night is a washout, and for no reason other than this innocent young girl now sees the world through Boris's eyes. The reasons that Boris is unhappy, he is given to her. The scene is full of subtext and irony. Alan shows us the scene and allows the audience to work out what has happened. Ugh. Oh, and the couple that we double dated with, so tell you, protons. Protons? Do I mean protons? Cratons. Cratons, that's what I mean. Yeah, they didn't know the first thing about string theory. I think you're a little drunk. <laughs> I did have a few drinks. Can you blame me, hanging out with those inchworms? Ugh. I mean, they actually think that love is the answer to everything. The reason Melody is a cartoon is to get us to this point. This scene is the emotional heart of the film and it changes Boris's behavior. He finally feels protective and he makes a decision, but he makes the imperfect choice, which is to marry Melody. Now, of course, this is an extremely unlikely and kind of weird, especially for a film made in 2009. It feels better knowing it was a script from the 70s. People fell in love in films at the drop of a hat, like in The Apartment or Charade. It was especially true of these young ingenues in cinema. 
It's a throwback in this modern film, and it doesn't work that great. Even within the film itself, Boris admits that the situation is imperfect and precarious. But it gets us to the second half of the film, when the film stops being about Boris. Can you believe I married her? What possessed me? This search in life for something to give the illusion of meaning, to, to quell the panic. All right, so it's been a year. 365 days of married life. And you know what? Not the worst year of my life either. Halfway through, the film becomes about Melody. She gets her own inciting incident, the arrival of her family. The first being her mother, Marietta, played by Patricia Clarkson. Melody's family are just as cartoonish as her. Their values are hilariously one-dimensional. Alan makes no effort to make him sympathetic. Apparently, this was a bigger part of the original script, The Adventures of the Southern Family in New York. Melody herself undergoes her own change. Most notably, she meets a nice guy in the form of Henry Cavill's Randy. He is also a one-dimensional cartoon. He's almost a Disney prince. He's an actor that is that handsome who lives on a boat, who falls in love with a girl at a restaurant and is a perfect gentleman for the rest of the film. It's the male version of the pixie manic dream girl. That said, the scenes are fun and romantic. Alan writes a wonderful scene with a handkerchief that is about as edge of your seat as the film gets, as we're just dying for Melody to work out what's going on. Oh, my mother talks about you all the time, and she's always telling me I have to meet you, and I'm saying, wow, I don't have to meet him, but he's so good looking, and yeah, you are. Thank you. Uh, I, I've moved to New York permanently now, and I live on a houseboat with a friend of mine. You live on a boat? Yes, it, I do. I'm very romantic by nature, so I live on a boat, and I read, and I think, and play my flute. Uh, Mom! Be still, Melody. There's nothing wrong with expanding your horizons. I've certainly expanded mine. <laughs> Alan later backs it up with a lovely scene where Melody is getting sick of Boris and she clutches to the handkerchief. It's a lovely bit of subtext in a film that is short of subtext. What are you doing with that? This? Nothing. Uh, I'll just, I just got it at the flea market. Who needs an antique handkerchief? Thought it was pretty. Yeah, but God knows throughout history who blew his nose in it. That subtext is missing with the rest of the family. It's very silly how quickly Melody's parents abandon who they are and who they've always been. Melody's mother seems to fall into a bohemian lifestyle in just a few days. Her father admits he's gay to a stranger in a bar and that's that. This isn't reality, although many of the moments are funny. And it's the point that Alan is trying to make with no subtlety. This isn't a subtle film. It's good for some broad humour and mainly bluntly reinforces the themes of the film. <laughs> Christ, if I'm going to be honest, you know, I never, ever really had a burning sexual desire for Marietta. Why'd you marry her? It was a thing to do. Everybody where I lived, you had a wife and children, and... Can I really level with you? Of course. John, John Celestine. Of course, John. I'm Howard Cummings, nay Kaminsky. I married Marietta because I was afraid. Of what? The way I felt towards the tight end on the football team. No. Every time he got in the line of scrimmage and bent over. Bartender, another round for my friend and me, please? And it isn't like Boris is the most multifaceted character either. We see a glimpse of his life before Melody, but it's never fleshed out. 
There's a nice scene where he plays music with his friends, but it comes out of nowhere and is never set up. And it's actually interesting how little he changes over the course of the film. His philosophy of life doesn't change. The biggest challenge that comes his way is when Melody breaks up with him. Even Boris says it's inevitable that life is meaningless and his worst fears are confirmed. Again, it's a lovely bit of subtext. Boris is so cruel to Melody here, and he's doing it because he's hurt. He's hurt because, in a way, he doesn't believe his own bullshit. And really, for the first time, we feel bad for Boris. You're upset. I, I don't expect you to understand how good you. Believe me, <clears throat> if I can understand quantum mechanics, I can certainly comprehend the thought process of a submental baton twirler. Boris. It's okay. I knew this day would come. I really did. The universe is winding down. Why shouldn't we? It's actually Melody who goes through the most change in the course of the film. She's the one who learns to be her own person, not Boris and not her parents. The film ends quickly after that. It feels a little rushed, but it's not much story left to tell. Everyone is just about at their happy ending. We just have to get there. Boris, in a stroke of luck, meets the right woman in Helena. Of course, she's actually the wrong person. She's a psychic and far away from the cold science that is at the heart of Boris. But we learn that the relationship works. It makes no sense, but Boris finds some happiness. Is, uh, is there anything I can do to make this up to you? Uh, can, I, can I get you something? What, what can I do? If I can ever walk again, you can buy me dinner. What do you do, Helena? Me, I'm a psychic. I'm sorry. Really? I was born with a very rare gift. I can see into the future. If you can see into the future, how come you didn't know I was going to jump out of a building and land on top of you? Maybe I did. Everyone else gets a rushed happy ending as well. Melody's family find themselves in new lives. They don't so much as go on a character journey, they go on a character teleport. Alan, for his part, doesn't try and hide it. Happiness is just dumb luck. The lesson that Boris learns isn't to change his life philosophy. In a way, it's to not get too bogged down in the first part, that life is meaningless and cruel, but to focus on the second part, that there is happiness to be found. It just shows what meaningless blind chance the universe is. Everybody schemes and dreams to meet the right person. <laughs> and I jump out a window and land on her. And a psychic yet. I mean, come on, talk about the irrational heart. Not to mention I've developed a fondness for grits. Whatever works is not the original title of Alan's 70s script. So it's telling that he put that idea front and centre as the name of this film. The idea of whatever works, the heart wants what the heart wants, and that happiness is luck, has been explored by Alan in a dozen other films, in a dozen other ways, from Manhattan to Match Point. So it's interesting that this script probably predates all that, and that Alan's view of life has been consistent through the decades. It's a very blunt, broad and comedic take on this core Woody Allen theme. Alan has said this better in other films, but it's a fun version nonetheless. That's why I can't say enough times, whatever love you can get and give, whatever happiness you can filch or provide, every temporary measure of grace, whatever works. Speaking of fun, let's talk about the comedy. 
The best humour comes from Boris and his quick quips. Boris gets these wonderfully long rants, the kind that only work in films. No one speaks for this long, uninterrupted, in real life. The only part of the script that Alan changed from the 70s, he claims, was some of the references. The writer's strike was over when cameras started rolling, so Alan was able to make changes to the script, but pre-production was well on the way. Boris references Obama, the Taliban, gay marriage, and other topics that would not have made sense in the original script, which basically means Alan wrote a lot of new jokes. And yes, it's not subtle and it's not terribly well written like topical late night talk show monologue jokes, but it's nice that Boris unloads his venom onto targets like the NRA. I could easily have taken more of Boris's ranting. Can you believe this cracker? This red state Neanderthal? <laughs> this mindless zombie of the National Rifle Association? My shrink says that the guns were all a manifestation of my sexual inadequacy. Yeah, if it wasn't for sexual inadequacy, the National Rifle Association would go broke. <laughs> the other bits of comedy are the culture clash between Melody's family and Bohemian New York. Like Melody's father seeing his wife's nude photos. They work less well for me, but they are also fun. And once you've settled into the tone of the film, that Melody and her family are cartoon idiots, there are charming moments. But overall, this feels like one of Alan's smaller films. In fact, it's so small that it was turned into a play in Spain. It's all about characters, and a lot of it happens inside Boris's apartment. If it wasn't made clear by Alan, it would have been recognisable as a work of a younger Woody Allen in the early 70s. It's not that far from Play It Again, Sam, or Don't Drink the Water, or Sleeper. They have a story and they aren't slapstick, but it's a broad comedy that is designed to make you laugh and forget your troubles. It all feels a bit slight, or perhaps it was rushed. The whole film is 90 minutes including all the credits, one of Alan's shortest in this period. Throughout the film, it does feel like Alan is treading old ground. It's not just the overarching whatever works theme, or the Pygmalion stuff. There's the fourth wall breaking, there's the return of the secretly talented photographer, something Alan used in Vicky Cristina Barcelona just one year earlier. Alan again uses a Fred Astaire film as a moment of pleasure in a mad world, like he did in The Purple Rose of Cairo. All in all, on paper, I can see why Alan put this one away for decades. It was slight, and he had taken elements from it over the years and used it in other films. It plays a lot like familiar Woody Allen notes, and of course, I generally like those notes. Oh, that's a cliché. Ah, good, Melody. You caught it. Yeah, well, you always get so mad when I do them. At least, in the end, the film is pretty funny. I think you would have to go back to almost a decade to 2000's equally cartoonish Small Time Crooks to find an Alan film that just wanted to make you laugh so much. It's a bit of a crowd pleaser. All great ideas. These are all great ideas, but... They all suffer from one fatal flaw. Which is? Yeah, what's that? Which is, they're all based on the fallacious notion that people are fundamentally decent. Give them a chance to do right and they'll take it. They're not stupid, selfish, greedy, cowardly, short-sighted worms. After making four films in Europe, Alan returned to New York for this one. I assume it was out of necessity with the need to make something quickly with the script that he had. Alan returned to Europe for another two films after this, and he had multi-film deals in place for Europe to get back to. This felt like a necessity and breaks up that European run. So this was a one-off, which is good for us because it's one of the few snapshots of modern New York by Alan between 2004 and 2017. It's nice that he didn't miss a decade and a half of New York completely. 
And there's an undercurrent in the film that New York is this place where people find themselves. It's not a script that could have been transferred to anywhere else, like Matchpoint. But unlike so many of his other New York films, Alan shows us a more simple corner of New York, away from the high living near Central Park. Boris lives in Chinatown, a part of New York that Alan has touched on but not extensively explored. It makes sense from a character point of view. Boris isn't rich, there isn't a lot of beautiful apartments and expensive restaurants in this one. There's a couple of sequences of New York landmarks. Amazingly, 40 years in, Alan still finds a couple that he hasn't been to on film before. There's the UN building and Grant's tomb. And after all this time, Alan has never really had a scene overlooking the Statue of Liberty. There is still new corners of New York to be found. Bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. I'm surprised you know that, terrible as it is. I closed with it for the Miss Greenwood, Mississippi pageant. I think it's so moving. Mm. But the huddled masses were never welcomed with open arms. As soon as they came over, each ethnic group was met with violence and hostility. Each one had to claw and fight its way in. People always hated foreigners. It's the American way. There is one notable New York cultural landmark, Yonah Schimmel's Knish Bakery. Established in 1890, it is one of the few remaining landmarks of the Lower East Side area that is very Jewish. It's the oldest Jewish bakery in the US. And above all, it's still featured on food tours and those knishes remain delicious, apparently. Like Carnegie Deli or the 59th Street Bridge, it's a good Woody Allen landmark to hit when you visit New York. What is this? A knish. And what's it made of? I've been eating these things for years. They're delicious. I don't know what's in them. I don't want to know what's in them. Don't even talk about it. There were also some scenes shot in a studio. Alan's regular haunt, the Kaufman Astoria studio. The scene where Boris meets Melody is a studio alleyway. I don't think Boris's new or old apartments are real. It comes back to that idea of how easily this film was converted into a stage play. Returning to New York locations also meant returning to a New York crew. Most notably, there was a New Yorker as cinematographer. These are wilderness years for Alan when it comes to cinematographers, and he would dart around with a couple of European favourites. But returning to New York, he didn't have a go-to partner in crime. Who he ended up working with was Harris Savitas, a native New Yorker. Now the interesting thing about Savitas was that he was acclaimed in the indie world. Alan had worked with Oscar-winning big-name cinematographers and got them to work in his little New York bubble. Savitas kind of lived in that bubble already. He worked with Noah Baumbach, Sofia Coppola, Gus Van Sant, and many other directors who studied at the altar of Woody Allen. So it seemed like a match made in heaven by all accounts, and the pair got on great. Allen, however, returned to Europe for his next several films, and Savitas died in 2012. It's interesting to imagine what he might have done with a film like Irrational Man, but we'll never know. There are also returning crew. When Allen started his run of European films in 2005, he didn't bring his usual crew with him. That was part of the deal of the European funding, to use local crew and create local jobs. Alan is well known for working with the same team and people who work with him in costumes or production design or makeup, they usually work with Alan for decades. Moving to Europe meant that that crew was benched. Returning to New York means that his usual crew got the call up. So back on production design is Santo Loquasto. Susie Benzinger is back on costume. Tom Warren is the art director. Rosemary Zerlo is on makeup. Basically, Alan got the band back together like a Muppets film. You're a brainless little twit who won't last three days in New York. 
You'd be dead now of starvation if I hadn't a heart as big as all outdoors. Whatever works probably doesn't exist if Alan couldn't find a good Boris to replace Zero Mostel. Mostel had a much bigger energy than Larry David, and I imagine Mostel would have been louder and more attention-seeking. Still, there is an inherent annoyance at the rest of the world that David brings to the role that Zero Mostel has. Larry David is, I think, great as Boris. He seems to be enjoying himself. Okay, so of course David is also one of the great misanthropes. His character in Curb Your Enthusiasm is equally cynical and unsympathetic as Boris. In fact, it's initially hard to tell what David is doing that is so different from his character on Curb Your Enthusiasm. The important thing is he's in Woody Allen's world now. He is doing those long Woody Allen monologues and dancing around and blocking for those long scenes. On Curb, David is often improvising. With Alan, he allows some improvisation, but it's his script that you have to nail. And David does so. If you watch carefully, you can see where Alan put the cuts in on those long monologues. David isn't a trained actor, although he would continue to pursue acting roles after this. He has performed plenty of stand-up. After the production, Alan had nothing but praise for David, who nailed what was asked of him. And of course, David had been in Woody's world before. He appeared in small speaking roles in Alan's New York stories and in Radio Days. In Radio Days in particular, David played a grumpy neighbour. That film had lots of extra scenes shot and lots of sections cut out of the final edit. It seems like David was one and he remarked that in the end, his only shot in the film was from a distance where you could barely see him. Less believable for me is that David is a quantum physicist. This is the double-edged sword of his casting. We know him, and his casting means that for the audience, we know he's a grumpy bastard. So the movie has to do less work to convince us of that. But being a professor of string theory is very far from David's persona. That part of Boris is played down. He really could have been a professor of anything. My father committed suicide because the morning newspapers depressed him. And could you blame him? with the horror and corruption and ignorance and poverty and genocide and AIDS and global warming and terrorism and then the family value morons and the gun morons. The horror, Kurtz said at the end of Heart of Darkness. The horror. <laughs> Lucky Kurtz didn't have the times to live it in the jungle. Ugh. Then he'd see some horror. Evan Rachel Wood is lovely as Melody, but it is a bit of a thankless role. Melody isn't remembered as one of the great Woody Allen roles and Wood, who is great in many other things, doesn't get much to do, although we do feel for her. Even though she's a bit useless, Wood manages to make Melody likeable when it could have easily have been annoying. The other thing Wood does is she is funny. She keeps up with David and makes us laugh. It comes together in that scene with the handkerchief where Randy is describing her and she doesn't know it. She's being dumb, she's being funny, and she's being heart-achingly sweet. I'm not getting into heaven, though. <laughs> I sinned. You? You're kidding. You sinned? I made love before I was married. <laughs> oh, my God. There's plenty of my friends have, but in my house, that's just unforgivable. <laughs> I just couldn't resist Bobby Claxton. All right, OK, spare me the details, all right? No, it was really beautiful. I mean, he was just this pretty boy guitar player in this amazing rock band. I mean, if you think you're a genius, he can double on the drums. No, doubles on drums. Yeah. According to Wood, Alan's main bit of direction to her was just to be more broad, and the same was true for her family. Melody's father is played by Ed Begley Jr. He is a master comic who has appeared in dozens of things that I've loved, 
He's a master improviser, as seen in many of the films he made with Christopher Guest. As is typical of smaller Alan roles, Begley didn't get much of the script. He had no idea his character was a southerner, and he had to conjure up a southern accent on the spot. Luckily, he's a pro. You're abducted. Tell me if my theory is correct. You were you were chloroformed by polygamous Mormons. They took you off to be someone's bride. I was not abducted. Didn't anybody read my letters? Yeah, but I assumed you were forced to, to write them at gunpoint. Who's this? Who are you? This is Boris, my husband. Boris, you're who? He's my husband. I'm Mrs. Boris Yelnikov. Who are you? I'm her husband. You want to pass out here or go in the living room? Probably the biggest revelation in this film is Patricia Clarkson. Clarkson is actually from the South and was born in New Orleans, so she understood her character and recognised her in other women she knew. In terms of great Woody Allen women in this period that isn't always well loved, Clarkson shines. Yes, she's also playing it quite broad, but she gets lots of great lines and she nails it. She's lived in the world of challenging acting roles for independent cinema, but here she shows that she could have easily been in a big dumb primetime sitcom especially when you take into account that she was brilliant in a completely different way one year earlier in Alan's Vicky Cristina Barcelona. In one year for Alan, she's gone from an Oscar-worthy, multifaceted speech about the complexity of love and fidelity in Vicky to doing comedic fainting here. That's range. You're what? I'm an artist. I, I, I don't bake pies. I don't go to church. I, I, I do collages, sculpture, photography. I live in Manhattan with two men who I love in a very happy menage a trois. Hey, what? Well, we all sleep together. A menage a trois. Like Alan's return to New York locations, it's nice to see Alan dip back into American actors and he picks out some real gems no doubt helped by his casting director, Juliet Taylor. Michael McKean is another comedy legend, having appeared in Spinal Tap and a lot of Christopher Guest films, and in recent years, Better Call Saul. He worked with Alan before, on stage, in Alan's play as Secondhand Memory. He doesn't come close to showing his talent here, and I wonder if there was more here that was cut. He kind of just disappears from the film for a while. Melody's men are both wonderful actors features Superman Henry Cavill and the newsroom's John Gallagher Jr. Both essentially play nice and handsome. Oh my God. What are you thinking? Entropy. Entropy? Entropy, Boris explained it. It's, it's why you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. You mean, once something happens, it's difficult to put it back the way it was? Boris says love is all about luck. I think so too, but isn't that just because we're young and we think we're gonna live forever and then we grow old and get diabetes? Maybe. Look, I do agree there's not much you can be sure of in this world. There's Samantha Bee, there's Conleth Hill and other fine actors who just come in and do a few lines. For me, the one that got away is Christopher Evan Welsh. He plays Melody's dad's, John's, love interest and was the narrator in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. He would be brilliant in Silicon Valley and he sadly passed away in 2013. Hello? I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. La la. For my sake, you must stay. If you should go away, you spoil this time. The opening credit song is Hello, I Must Be Going by Groucho Marx, performed in the 1930 Marx Brothers film Animal Crackers. It's an odd choice. I'm not exactly sure what it has to do with the film. It could be an allusion to Groucho himself, a famous grump. Hello, I must be going could simply be how Boris feels about people 
wanting to get away from them. It doesn't fit very well with the rest of the film, which lacks a strong musical character. There's a bit of classical score, some big band jazz, and then there's the Marx Brothers. There was a soundtrack released, and it's odd and skips around with mood and tone, and it's sort of unlistenable. Whatever Works was first released in the US on the 19th of June 2009, playing film festivals before the film came out. It was released in the US on Sony Pictures Classics, the first of a run of seven films they would release for Alan, the longest period he would have with one US distributor after Orion and United Artists in the 70s and 80s. Two of the founders of Sony Pictures Classics, Michael Barker and Tom Bernard, had worked at Orion. It would be a very productive run and included the blockbusters Midnight in Paris, and Blue Jasmine. Whatever Works, however, wasn't one of those blockbusters, taking in only $5 million in the US box office, less than a quarter of Vicky Cristina Barcelona. He did better than his last three films set in America, all of whom failed to break $5 million. Worldwide, it took in $30 million, so it basically did okay. It probably paid for itself and fine enough for Sony as long as there were other hits, and there would be. Some critics said that Whatever Works was fine, but most saw it as slight. It didn't sweep the awards season. The performances were way too broad to attract the Oscars crowd. I was considered for a Nobel Prize in physics. I didn't get it, but you know, it's all politics, like every other phony honor. The best part of the release was the publicity circuit that featured Alan and David doing stuff together. It was funny to hear Alan, always dry and self-depreciating, being paired with David who is devastatingly disdainful of people. Usually, Alan isn't challenged for the best one-liners in group interviews, and it was nice to see him on his toes with David next to him. That's what they mean by genius. Alan approached his film as a light, simple film he could make quickly and fill his year with the writer's strike looming. And it shows, it is definitely slight. I group it with those early 2000s run of lighter comedies like Small Time Crooks or The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Alan has changed so much as a writer since the early 70s, so this film does feel like a throwback. It's full of cliches and the characters are cartoons. It feels like it could have been a Mel Brooks film starring Gene Wilder or Walter Matthau or someone like that. I wonder what would happen if this entire film was shot in Technicolor. But overall, I like it and it's funny. Yes, Alan is playing on a lot of old tropes, but it's also one big concentrated whack of Woody Allenness. It's actually quite a nice introduction to Alan's world. On the whole, I have a lot of fun as the film breezes past with its short running time. I love being back in Woody Allen's modern New York, especially knowing it would be almost another decade until we return. Then there's the message of the film. Manhattan is my favourite Woody Allen film, but I find trying to explain the meaning of that film hard. The idea that happiness is what you make it, and society's expectations of happiness are stupid, and love can come from anywhere. Manhattan is wonderful, poetic, and beautiful about it. Whatever works is blunt and silly about the same thing. And because it's more blunt, Alan makes that point with more obviousness. It's not a better film by any means, but in terms of that whatever works philosophy that Alan has been spending decades trying to convince us of, it certainly works here. Let, let me teach you something about love, okay? Naturally, there are exceptions to what I'm going to say, but, but they're the exception, not the rule. Love, despite what they tell you, does not conquer all, nor does it even usually last. In the end, the romantic aspirations of our youth are reduced to whatever works, okay?
here's some fun facts about what if works. The use of the song Happy Birthday is interesting. It is widely regarded as one of the most expensive copyrighted songs ever. That Alan uses it here is interesting because one of the reasons he uses old jazz records is they are cheap and often out of copyright. In 2016, Happy Birthday was declared in the public domain, but back in 2009 it would have cost Alan and his team some significant money. That said, singing Happy Birthday whilst washing your hands was something that some people did and obviously became more popular during COVID. I'm sure Boris would have felt vindicated. Happy birthday, dear Boris. Happy birthday to you. Another curious musical credit is the use of Auld Lang Syne in the last scene. It's actually the same recording taken from its use in the film Radio Days. I guess Alan had a version that worked. Why pay for a new one? And finally, more than a few actors have turned up in Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm. Jessica H appeared memorably in Seinfeld, Michael McKean appeared in a couple of episodes of Curb, as did Ed Begley Jr. And of course, Robert Whitey, the director of Woody Allen a Documentary, helped create the show Cobra Enthusiasm and directed many of the episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of Whatever Works? I know some fans really love this one. It's certainly his funniest film in a long stretch. But what do you think? I'd love to know, and you can email me on woodyallenpages at gmail.com. As usual, best comments and questions will be read out in the Q&A episode at the end of the season. Look, as usual, there's ways to support the podcast, and this is where I talk about it. And you know, it's always the same old thing, so I'm going to focus on a different way to support the podcast every episode. And yes, there's the Patreon, and buy me a coffee if you want to help pay for the cost of the website and the podcast. There's books and posters to buy, links are in the description. But as we are back, what I would really love is people leaving the podcast, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. It really does help with discovery, and right now, I want to make sure people can find the podcast and all the old episodes. With Woody Allen prepping for a new film, I hope new fans will come across it. It is a no-cost way of supporting the podcast and a very, very important one. So if you have the time, please leave me a review. You can also follow me on social media and check out the website for more news. Links to both are in the description as usual. I'm on at Woody Allen Pages pretty much everywhere and it's WoodyAllenPages.com. Next week, we look at the film that, according to his studio, was the one that Woody Allen had to make. Thanks for listening. Do the yourself, best they can. Man. Speak for right. yourself. All I'm saying is that people make life so much worse than it has to be, and, and believe me, it's a, it's a nightmare without their help.